Would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. Over the last uh, eight, six weeks, seven weeks or so, we've been looking at a couple of par- some parables of Jesus from Luke 15 and 16. A couple of different themes uh, to those sets of parables. Last, in May, we looked at uh, Luke 15, and we saw that those were all parables of lostness. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And we, we talked about how this was actually Jesus' way of illustrating what his mission was to come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. And so that was a very, very much a picture of our salvation and Jesus' mission. And then, but then when we move to Luke 16, it's like Jesus changes gears and he, he deals with some things that are a little bit more earthy, money resources. Two parables that begin, there was a rich man. And yet, these, this look at resources is also looked at from not just an earthly perspective, but an eternal perspective. How do we use our resources keeping eternity in mind? And we saw last week in the parable, the, the uh, shrewd uh, steward or the dishonest steward, as some of them, uh, some people call him, that uh, the way that the disciples were to to use his example was just as he used his resources to win friends for himself for the future. So Jesus is saying, be wise and cunning like the ways of the world, and using your resources, which you can't take with you, to Make friends for the kingdom of God whom you can take with you into eternity. And now we turn to one more uh, rich man parable, if you will. And it also looks at uh, resources and the use of resources from an eternal perspective, uh, even more so because it brings us into heaven and hell and a conversation uh, between the two. So let's look at Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. We know this as the rich man and Lazarus often, although I'll be calling a rich man poor man. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you caused Luke to remember, take in these words, this parable, and and faithfully uh, have it inscripturated so that we could understand it perfectly without without any errors in it. We pray that you now, Holy Spirit, would continue to inspire that word to us. That you would take this word, this story, help us enter into it as Jesus would like us to, and help us to know how it speaks to each one of us individually and to us as a church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, which I think he probably took the title from this parable that talks about this great chasm between heaven and hell, gives us his imagined depiction of heaven and hell. He kind of violates the the parable in that he does have someone go from one to the other, which uh, Father Abraham here says cannot be done. But he, in his imagination, gives us his depiction of the differences between heaven and hell. And and as as this man in the parable is in heaven... He encounters a parade, and he expects that this parade is being held in honor of a famous saint or an apostle. The dialogue goes this way, is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, not at all, he said, it's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And he finds out that the parade is actually for a lowly maiden of no account on earth. But in heaven it's a different matter. This is kind of similar to the story that Jesus told. We might call it rich man, poor man. But which is which? Jesus' story is likely a retelling of another story, or maybe a few of them, actually. Way back when, there was a famous Egyptian tale of a father and son disagreeing about their preference as to whether they would prefer a rich or poor man's funeral. So the son takes the father into the afterlife, where they see that the poor man is living in luxury, while the rich man is living in poverty. Now the Jewish rabbis started to tell a parable very similar to this, but in their parable it was a rich tax collector and a poor Torah teacher, a poor teacher of the law, or or, uh, Pharisee. And then their reversal of fortunes in the afterlife, where the poor Torah teacher lived in luxury, and the rich tax collector got his just desserts living in poverty. Now Jesus, as with many of his parables, most of his parables I'd suggest to you, 
Take stories that were already out there, that rabbis were already telling, but he changes them subtly, and sometimes not so subtly. Now, why would he take stories that are already out there? Well, people are starting to think along with the story. They know where the story's going, and suddenly Jesus changes it, and it, it catches them up short, and and all of a sudden, they take note of what's really happening. And that's happening here in this story, I would suggest to you. For in Jesus' story, there are two characters, but in this case, they represent the two main classes of the society of his day. There was really no middle class in first century Israel, only the rich and the poor. The rich man was the richest of the rich. He wore purple outer garments... Purple was reserved for royalty because it was, to make purple fabric was rare and expensive. The dye was found in a rare purple snail. And so you'd pay a lot of money to even get anything made of purple. And linen undergarments, which were likely imported from Egypt. It also says he, he, he lived in such a way, he lived in luxury, feasted in a way that according to the verb that's being used here, he feasted in a way that was reserved for the most joyous of Israel's festivals. So the people of Israel, a few times a year, seven different festivals, one of them is a fast, but at the other festivals, knew what it was like to, to feast in this way. But this man could do it every day. This was a part of his regular routine. And yet, in spite all of his wealth, we don't know his name. He's never named in the Bible. We only know that he has five brothers who also lived a life of blatant disregard for God and his word. So anyone listening to this parable would condemn the rich man's failure to help out his Jewish brother begging outside his gates because that's what God commands in the Torah, to, to take care of those who are poor. But otherwise, probably most of the people in that society looked up to and maybe envied this rich man. The poor man was the poorest of the poor. He couldn't walk. Because of his poverty, he lacked medical care and hygiene, which may have contributed also to his skin disease. He went desperately hungry and could only hope for scraps of food swept off the dining room floor, generally reserved for dogs and beggars. Those dogs were his only companions now, licking his sores. And yet, for all of his poverty and lowliness, we do know his name, Lazarus. Death, an equal opportunity event, comes to both. The rich man undoubtedly goes out in style with a fancy funeral and many mourners. Lazarus dies alone. There's some hint that he might have even died unburied because it mentions the rich man's burial, but does not mention any burial for Lazarus. And then the scene shifts to the afterlife, where we encounter a great reversal. Lazarus is at Abraham's side in heaven, and the rich man is in the torments of Hades, which is the grave, but apparently from Jesus, a preview of eternal hell. Now it's the rich man begging for Lazarus to do something to temporarily quell his suffering, although you do have to say that in essence he's, he's kind of still treating Lazarus like a servant. 
Abraham, have Lazarus do this. Have Lazarus do that. But I want to note a couple of other things that would have stood out and that would not have been lost on the listeners of Jesus' day. First, the rich man keeps calling Abraham father. As a Jew, being a son of Abraham was for many the ba- their basis for the hope of eternity. This man found out, however, that just having Abraham as your father doesn't mean you're going to end up in eternity with him. And then once he found out there was no hope for him, he pleads with Abraham to warn my brothers. Abraham responds, well, they have Moses and the prophets. That is the scriptures. He still insists that that Abraham send Lazarus, to which Abraham responds that even someone risen from the dead won't convince them. And then the parable, as with many, Jesus tells, is sort of left unfinished. It causes the listeners and the readers to answer the question, how will it finish for me? How will I act in my life? What will be my eternal outcome? That's the question Jesus is asking his audience. The disciples, the wealthy, us, But I want to notice, have you note his particular audience? Look back at chapter 16, if you've got your Bibles open, verse 14. Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. This is at the end of the parable we looked at last week. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That's the last group mentioned before Jesus tells this parable. And so quite likely, some of the Pharisees, now certainly not all of them, most of the Pharisees uh, would not have fit into this characterization. These were probably the Pharisees that other, the majority of Pharisees were condemning as hypocritical, as legalistic. Some of the Pharisees were sneering at Jesus' teaching on money because we find out they secretly loved money. Now, being a Pharisee and being a teacher was not a lucrative position, but this tells us something about the attitude of some of them. And Jesus says, other people may not know that, but I know your hearts. And now he seems to illustrate that and to, to talk to them about their love of money with this parable. So again, Jesus took a known Jewish parable and changed the characters. In the typical rabbinic parable, the Pharisees and even some of the upper class would have easily identified with the teacher of the law, even though he wasn't necessarily upper class. In fact, he was the lowly person in this parable. He would be their hero because of his spirituality. Versus the tax collector who they believed was a sinner at risk of losing status as a son of Abraham. So in essence, that that Jewish parable wasn't so much about the difference between wealth and poverty and and a reversal as much as about the difference between being in, in relationship with God and failing to be in relationship with God. And those who are in relationship with God, they say in their parable, are going to be rewarded. And those who are not are going to go to the other place. 
But now Jesus changes the characters. In order to get these hypocritical Pharisees to identify with the rich man. After all, he was respectable. He claimed to be uh, to have Abraham as his father, and he was wealthy as well, and they loved money. And for some of the Pharisees, and particularly the Sadducees, that was the purpose in life: to be able to claim Abraham as your father and then get as rich as you could. Well, Jesus knew that the hearts of many of the upper-class people, whether Sadducees or Pharisees, he knew their hearts. And this parable highlights, in a sense, the society that the wealthy had created in first-century Israel. In Jesus' day, there was a great social divide between the wealthy and the general population called the Am Haaretz, the people of the land who were sometimes also viewed as social and or moral outcasts. They were the hoi polloi in Greek. They were the people that, that were just the commoners, but often, often uh, the religious leaders would look down their noses at them and assume some things about their morality. Well, the wealthy were contributing to an atmosphere that made a person like Lazarus have to beg. Now, the rich man himself is not overtly wicked in this parable. He's just indifferent to the needs of the poor, especially the one at his doorstep, which flies in the face of the character and commands of God. Interestingly, if anyone had questioned them about their attitude to these folks, these people of the land, these, these people that they saw as kind of lower-class citizens and maybe lower-class in morality as well, if anyone questioned them on their attitude, they would have replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to the law and repent. So Jesus is actually using their very words against them. They also believe that a good sober life would be richly rewarded and a bad hedonistic lifestyle which was often assumed about the common folk, would be punished in the afterlife. And so that rabbinic parable Jesus is probably modeling his parable on really spoke to the heart of their theology. You live good, you're going to be rewarded. You live a wicked lifestyle, a bad lifestyle, you're going to find yourself in poverty, even if you're rich on earth. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily agree with their theology. We should get that clear. He doesn't necessarily agree with their theology, but he uses it from the lips of Abraham to condemn them. Because if they have identified with the respectable person in this parable, they find themselves in Hades. So Jesus tries to show them the natural outcome of their under-the-sun lives, of their love of money, and it is Hades and eternal punishment. Many Jews believed that being sons of Abraham guaranteed their eternal standing with God. They even believed that Abraham would intercede with God for them. But Jesus shows them that it just isn't so. That rather, it's a relationship with God that counts, which he identifies as loving God above all and loving your neighbor, such as Lazarus, as yourself. 
Now, the name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew Eliezer, the name Eliezer, which means God has helped. And that was certainly true of Lazarus because no one else was helping him. He had to rely solely on God. The parable reminds them and us that God loves common folk and even outcasts. Remember, Jesus hung out with these folks. And he also reminds us that certainly sons of Abraham, and Abraham was in Jewish thinking the paragon of hospitality. If you go back to Genesis 8, where Abra- where 18, where Abraham uh, entertains some angels and God himself in a theophany, unaware through his hospitality. He's the, he's the paragon of hospitality. Certainly, if you're a son of Abraham, you should be hospitable even to people like Lazarus, who are also sons of Abraham. We see that hospitality in another parable, the sheep and goat judgment. Well, some of the Pharisees would often ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. We get that throughout the Gospels, which he always refused. Here, the rich man's asking the same thing in a sense. He, he's requesting that Lazarus be sent as a sign from heaven to his brothers. And Abraham knowingly responds, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I wonder if there's a reason Jesus decided to name this man Lazarus. Was it a, something that would serve as a reminder to them later when, when he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead? Certainly his comment was true. They didn't listen to Moses and they killed the prophets. And even Jesus' resurrection, not to mention that of Lazarus, even Jesus' resurrection failed to change many of their minds. Now, we also have to rush to say Jesus is not condemning wealth here. He's not condemning wealth. How do I know that? Because Abraham was considered one of the wealthiest men in the Bible. Where is he? He's in heaven. So he's not condemning wealth as much as how one uses it, how one lives one's life. He seems to be addressing two aspects of life. First is the social aspect. To those living in a society that was indifferent to the needs of the poor and outcast. Does it sound like our society sometimes? He expresses the need for them to love outcasts as brothers, fellow sons of Abraham. But he's also trying to hit us where it hurts personally. To those with an attitude of thinking that outward piety... Religious name dropping, I'm a son of Abraham. Synagogue or church attendance, religious heritage, that all of that is all that counts. Do we ever have that thinking in our minds? He reminds them and us that it's only a personal relationship with the one who did rise from the dead that will allow us to take our place at, with Lazarus at Abraham's side, at Jesus' side, as sons and daughters, not of Abraham, but as adopted sons and daughters of God himself. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we 
prepare to celebrate communion this next Sunday as we seek to focus on our relationship with you and what you've done for us. Help us to remember that it is all about a relationship with you, not about what we do, not about who we know, not about what names we can drop, not about how much we have, but it's all about a relationship with you and then that love of God flowing out in our love for a neighbor. Help us to be so in love with you that in this next week we would just naturally show that love, your love, to our neighbors as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me now as we sing, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. We'll stand and sing the three stanzas.